0: Hello and welcome to the show. This is the Goodwin Podcast, and I'm Nico Lapalusa, your host. And it's been some months. If you checked into the podcast, you know it's been some months since I've smoked cannabis. I've I've stopped smoking, so I've stopped smoking cannabis. Which it's so weird to me how changes happen. All at once, but it takes a long time. It takes a little, little efforts to get there. All so it can finally happen all at once. There's like literally a straw that breaks the camel's back. I don't know how it works, but I want to just kind of walk through my cannabis journey, my journey with cannabis. Um, it started when I was 13. The first time I smoke, can- I smoke canvases. Um, I want. Look, I knew I wasn't going to be anything in football or athletics in high school. I was a super late bloomer. I was one of the youngest kids in my class. And, like, I just didn't have the body, speed, um, to really, or size to show up for sports. So I had to figure out another way to, like, because you know, going to football practice and being the smallest lineman, they put me on the line because I was so slow. But I was also the smallest lineman. So I'd go to practice and just get my shit rocked by public school kids, um, you know, who've already seen a nipple. And I was a, a Catholic school child, pretty much. And I would just go and get smashed every single day. I'm like, you know what, don't want to do this. I started ditching practice. I'm like, I need to find a new friends. I need to find a new way to climb the social hierarchy. And then I heard about drugs and I saw that was, that was a way to be cool, perhaps something like this. I don't know. I was just looking to fit in. And um, the first time I was invited to this, this kid's house for a sleepover it was like my first coed sleepover. Uh my parents were suspicious as hell. They didn't know it was co-ed, but you know, they knew I was trying to make friends. They dropped me off, and basically the whole night was spent ripping bongs. And so my first night <laughs> ever was like a smoke out session smoking bongs, and I didn't get high. F- thank God. I didn't experience cannabis deeply the first time. Because these people were not my, these 13-year-olds were not my friend. Um, I don't know why I was there, but I remember waking up the next morning feeling so guilty, so awful about myself. Because, by the way, part of the reason I got invited there was because I had lied that I I was a cannab- I smoked cannabis and I knew what I was, you know, like I knew what it even was. I had never even bought a satchel of it. And so I get invited to this house to to smoke out and we were smoking bongs and I didn't even, and it didn't take me under. And that was fortunate. It was a decent amount of time, but the next morning I wake up to get picked up from my dad. I'm 13. And Just feeling so guilty, so uncomfortable. Because he was always a big no-smoker, you know. Um, Doctor, very against cigarettes. um, But, you know, a little deep insight into my life. My dad also had seizures growing up from, you know, until he was about 20 or 19. Before he had me. And he was convinced... You know, part of the reefer madness, part of the Reagan era was like he was convinced that cannabis would would trigger his seizures and without ever trying it. So he was just convinced of it and and always was very cautious of it and therefore kind of developed a front against it. So he was very um, traditional, I suppose, in, in terms of not wanting me to partake, you know, wanting better for me. And so I go to this kid's house. That was my first time. Nothing really happened. So I'm in now. You know, I'm I'm experienced now. I don't have to lie about smoking cannabis and being cool. And look, we live, this is the 90s. This is NWA. This is Snoop Dogg. You know, this is Dr. Dre. In the suburbs of Chicago. (laughs) In the white primarily white and Jewish suburbs of Chicago. It was Eminem, Dr. Dre. And Eminem wasn't very weed-focused, but he was hyper-drug-focused, you know? Um, but, I mean, Snoop Dogg. It was just so glamorized. Like, it's so glamorized. MTV was popping. There was always smoke-filled rooms with big-booty bitches. You know. if you if, if you know, you know. And if you don't know, you still know because there's still a hyper popularization of cannabis there's a there's a glorification and a fetish, and a fetishization of cannabis and it's lost its way a little but I'll get into that later so I kind of grew up it's the cool thing right it's the cool thing smoking before school um and you know being in the know being more grown up than You know, being the number one stoner, you know, as opposed to being the number one football player, Uh, you know, being a drug dealer was like being the starting linebacker, being the best drug dealer was like being the quarterback, etc., So I played, you know, I fell into that that trap, and I played that in that role, and it never really felt that great. But it was the people I hung out with, and it introduced me to a lot of really cool music in, in a way. So I I smoked that one time. It takes me like another year or two um, to kind of do it again. I'm not really interested um, in smoking, but we're experimenting with some with alcohol and drinking because you know, I didn't really know where to get cannabis. But eventually, as I become a sophomore and a junior, I split. I go in on a bubbler with my friend, um, and we start trying to make some money selling some selling some weed. And I start smoking again. But I never really inhaled because I did. I always had this shame. I didn't like it. My my pa- my parents were so adamant about how it's not good for me. And and part of me knew that's probably smoke isn't the best thing to put into my, my young body, you know, it can't be that good. And I will get into the medicinal benefits of cannabis. And I do believe, and we'll get there, okay. But as far as putting hot smoke into your body, all the time, you know, any logic will say, question mark. So I didn't really inhale, right? Um, and people were privy to this. You know, I, I used to get called out for not inhaling. Like, there is a whole fucking thing about blowing clouds and mushroom clouds and pulling them back in. And, uh, only if you, if you, when you start to really smoke, when you inhale and you exhale, there's like a little clearness before the smoke comes out. And that's how you kind of know the smoke got deep into your lungs. <laughs> so there's like this peer pressure element. And so one day I split up, I buy a bubbler with my friend and we smoke and I cough for an hour. We start laughing for about 10 minutes and then I go into a full-blown panic attack. And it's, you know, it's your classic panic attack. Um, Is this how I'm going to be forever? Did I ruin my life forever? oh no, oh no, please come back, normal sense of normal reality. Please come back, please come back, please come back. Ouch, ouch, ouch. You know, in in that deep suffering of feeling some sort of pain, but also not having the faculties to remain calm and um, and move through it To But, you know, dying, ego death maybe. Maybe it was my first ego death in a way. And I spend the rest of the night laying in my friend's bed. I put on Bob Marley because I was told that's what you're supposed to do. And I grab a box of Cocoa Puffs and just am eating Cocoa Puffs by the handful, wishing for it to end, and uh and listening to Bob Marley somehow. And, you know, I woke up the next morning shook. Like I felt different for a few days, like And that actually scared me away from cannabis for maybe a year or two. And until, you know, it came on back. I saw, I just like, so in that year or two, I would just drink alcohol and, you know, not smoke. But a year later, it came back. It was a Super Bowl party. It's actually my same friend's house. Maybe it was even the same bubbler, but I smoke it with with my friend uh, and uh, we're like laughing hysterically. If you've smoked cannabis and you remember those first highs, those laughs are just... uh, They've happened sometimes still, but just, I don't know, the intensity of laughter as a child and like that confusing and crazy presence of cannabis, it's just you know it's the dragon that you it's like chasing the dragon right it's it's just some, there's something special about it in a way and and then the same thing happens i go into like a paranoid very scary place and uh i, th- I think i ended up walking like miles by myself like in the dark not watching the super bowl being you know, until I came down in a way, um, but then again, that scared me again, so so really, my high school career was like smoking but not inhaling and then smoking a few times and just being shook to the point where I ended up taking these long breaks until college rolled around. Now, college was different because I realized some of the paranoia that i was I was having was because I was smoking, but also hiding it, having to hide it and having to be, you know, smoking in friends' houses where their parents were still there or coming home after I'd been smoking, after I feel like I smell like weed and worrying I was going to get caught. Like that, that pressure, that guilt, that shame, it wasn't enough to stop me from smoking, but it was enough to ruin the experience for me. So when I went to college and I had this sense of freedom, I used to, I I got to come home and not have to worry about smelling a particular way, or we can smoke openly in in some places, and and I kind of dove back in, and it, it had a different flair to it. It was a little bit um, more comfortable, a little bit more social, and and it was usually accompanied by lots of drinking. You know, freshman and sophomore year. Of college was a particularly gruesome amount of drinking um, and alcohol ceremonies, if you will. So much so that we would we would go out like four nights a week—Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday—and sometimes Tuesdays. <laughs> and we came back to the dorms. And one of my one of my friends at the time had a solo dorm; he didn't have a roommate on this like special floor i don't know how he got like a handicap room so it was like slightly bigger and had like i don't know it was in this like kind of special place and we were just so drunk we used to take like do 10 shots before we even went to the bars and mark them on our wrist like it was some sort of badge of honor and we got drunk and we would come back you know because we would probably fail at finding a connection with a with a woman and we'd come back and and we were just smoking bongs openly in his dorm room. We used to have make these things called zoob tubes where you'd take a paper towel roll, stuff it with dryer sheets and paper towel, and then put a paper towel on the end with a rubber band and you'd inhale the bong and blow it through the zoob tube. And that would somehow filter out the smoke. But, <laughs> at, you know, we came home drunk. We would use that at the beginning and then four or five of us smoking bongs in a room Uh, We were just blowing it openly into the air, you know, and knock, 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 the police. The police busted, you know, busted. And I think we hid the bong up in the ceiling with the weed. So they actually didn't find it, but it reeked in there. Our eyes they interrogated us. We were clearly stoned, clearly drunk. And, um, that friend ended up getting kicked out of the dorms because of that. But what that meant was now we had an off-campus, he ended up getting an apartment and we had an off-campus spot to go party and smoke. So it didn't stop the smoking. It actually only increased the cannabis use. And, uh, Yeah, I mean, I got in some trouble. I had to go to the dean. I ended up having to go to a rehab program because of this, because of this incident, and they weren't. Yeah, so and the rehab didn't work because I only felt weird. It's like I was in this room with like twenty or thirty people who were telling stories about like crack and heroin and their pill addictions, and I'm like, I drink too much and. I thought I was better than them, you know, because my drugs weren't as hard. In a way, I thought I shouldn't have been there. But in hindsight, like, how I was using alcohol and cannabis, like, if I was ready for to change that, uh, you know, maybe it could have been helpful. Because it was a bit abusive. So, it, you know, cannabis use picked up tremendously Uh, That freshman year, sophomore year, I move out of the dorms and have my own place. Um, And I think it was just like, that's when it started to become that every night I'd go out and drink and wouldn't pick up and wouldn't find someone to have sex with, wouldn't find someone to be with, you know, which was most, most nights was like, at that point, point, ninety-five percent of the nights, because of my lack of game and and, and confidence, and um, I'd come home and smoke. So I would I would cre- I created this like Mary Jane became my girlfriend, and I created this association with drinking and smoking where they went together now, and that became the habit because of the intensity that I would drink, uh, smoking would would follow, and it was just. That kind of habit formed where go out, drink, come back, smoke, go out, drink, come back, smoke four or five times a week. And uh, junior year, same thing. I ended up moving into a frat house, which I rushed. You know, I did the thing Um, and I started selling weed. And I had a monopoly on a frat house. So me and my roommate would pick up like, Substantial amount, and we'd sell it every month. And both of us funded trips, full semesters to um, Australia, with this <laughs> with this venture. And we like funded like this all expenses paid for trip to New Zealand from Australia uh, because we were selling because of our time selling cannabis in the frat house. I ended up getting kicked out of that frat. Uh, which might be a whole nother story, but basically it was parents weekend and I had a room that had access to the roof and I would, and I went out and I smoked cause I was a um, weed dealer. It was like an integral part of my life. I would go out and I'd smoke cannabis on the roof during parents weekend. And the president thought that that was grounds to come to my room that night And kick down my roommate's door. Now, my roommate's door, we had a room. It was like two separate rooms, but we had access to the hallway through my roommate's door. So we'd walk into my roommate's room, and then there was a door attached. And then that would be my little room, which was basically a bed and a cabinet, which had a TV on it. And he kicks down my roommate's door. And I came out and very upset and I ended up punching him in the face, and that led to me getting that led to me getting in trouble. I had to like go face like the board of the fraternity and like basically go on trial. Um, but it turns out the next semester I went to Australia, and I just stopped paying dues to the frat, and I kind of had a bitter taste in my mouth from it from it then moving forward. I I've come to realize that a lot, I had a lot of tension in the fraternity. And the reason was, was because I was just a very, in, like I wasn't able to rise up and give people. I wasn't giving genuine presence. I wasn't giving my authentic self. I wasn't serving the frat, serving myself or serving anyone around me at the time. So I kind of, I see how the tension arose in a lot of ways does it mean I should have gotten like my door kicked in and like and certain things should have happened I don't know I mean I felt ostracized in a lot of ways from fraternity but I kind of ostracized it too by not participating by kind of shunning it but still being a part of it if you're half in and half out of something it's you're gonna get some negative feedback and that's what I was getting. I was getting that negative feedback because I was half in and half out. And uh, and no one no one likes that. And I don't like that. But at the time, it's all I knew. And I guess we'll talk a little bit about the frat. I mean, frats at I- Iowa is where I went, University of Iowa. It had like such a strong non-Greek life that the Greek life wasn't that like potent like some places you go to and it's like you have to go into the fraternity the greek system and because the greek system has that power over like social life the hazing can be like crazy and the hazing was pretty shit in the fraternity i was at like we had to like go there and like line up in a hallway once a week in a suit and they would test us on like the fraternity history and if we got anything wrong, we would get yelled at or get like, so it was a lot of drinking and it was a lot of like lining up in a hallways called lining up and, you know, getting yelled at, but nothing physical, I think. Yeah, there's nothing, nothing too, <laughs> like I talked to a guy who went to a different school and in His return, his fraternity made him eat a urinal, a used urinal cake. Like that's that seemed fucked because even if it wasn't used, the a urinal cake is probably so bad for you, <laughs> <Dude>. <laughs> so it wasn't that, but uh, it was still shitty and stupid. And I wouldn't recommend anyone trying to get friends like that. My strategy for getting friends, anyone who's listening to this that's that's a young man, a young woman trying to get friends is. Find an activity, a hobby that you genuinely like to do. Fucking choir. uh, Woodworking. um, Playing music. Dancing. um, Whatever it is. Puzzles. You know, show up to those. Find a community event. At college, there are so many, so many clubs and so many classes. And I... My regret from college is not utilizing those classes, not diving into my passions, not trying to find out my passions, but really surrendering to the so, the norm of drinking and trying to, you know, be something I, I really, I'm not, and I really wasn't. And spending all that time trying to be something I wasn't really led to a lot of turmoil in my life at a social level. But you show up to these things that you genuinely like to do, and you just keep showing up, and all of a sudden you'll you'll find a community around you that of people that actually support you and like you. So, back to cannabis, I went to Australia, and Australia, I had no connections after having sold weed for uh, uh, for a semester to support my trip. I get to Australia and you know, no real weed. I learned that people only smoke spliffs. So people are only smoking tobacco and cannabis. So cannabis use was low. There was like two or three times where maybe a handful and maybe even a little bit more, but it just wasn't that prevalent. So my cannabis use went went down fairly significantly. And then post-college, kind of like the habit was set. No, I should say there was a final year of college where I came back from Australia, I ended up living with a with a roommate, and they were all about smoking, all about cannabis. And at that point, I'd already had the habit, but I still never fully embraced it. I would always use cannabis at that point and have shame and be like, this is not what I want to do. And but the fact that it was always around and the fact that I wasn't strong enough to really have a spine or like I was just so willing to go with the flow and there were some validating moments like there were some connections I like a lot of my relationships I had at the time were made because of I was selling cannabis and and I was like and therefore partaking and I kind of had a small sense of community you know within like cannabis was my way of making friends and it became It became that for me. But as far as the actual act of enjoying it, like I was fronting. I was doing a lot of fronting and so much that the roommate I was living with at the time would smoke every single night And, and I would join them a lot of the nights and I would go in my room and just, I remember this one particularly manic night where I wrote like five or 10 pages detention style. I do not smoke cannabis. I do not drink. I do not smoke. I do not drink. I do not smoke. Now, in hindsight, when you listen to all these like manifestation, goal setting uh, principles, you're supposed to speak in positive terms eh, as if you already have it. So saying I do not drink, I do not smoke, the subconscious doesn't recognize negatives, according to Brian Tracy, Psychology of Achievement. So you basically take out the word not and it becomes, I do drink, I do smoke, I do drink, I do smoke. So the, the focus is still on drinking and smoking. Do you see? Something more positive, a positive goal setting would be like, I am sober. I am sober. I, I live a life of um free of substance. Or I, you know, I enjoy a sober reality, a sobering reality, or I get, I go to sleep uh, peacefully and well um, with tea, you know, with herbal tea. I I don't know, something like this. And I could have been reinforcing what my habits at that point, but basically there's this inner conflict of doing something that didn't feel right, but it was around and not having the uh, fortitude to really stop. And I kind of continued to do this until post-college. Now, post-college, I moved to South America. And in South America, not speaking Spanish, I found cannabis like twice in the year. Like I really didn't smoke at all. It just kind of fizzled out. Um, I should also mention I was prescribed to Adderall through college. And I, and I cut that out of my life as well. So I was kind of like on this forced sobriety. Um, and I, I didn't have much money, so I wasn't able to like go out and drink or anything, but I lived in South America and in this kind of like forced sobriety place. And it was, you know, a very interesting time. And I've talked about it in previous episodes, um, to come back, A year and a half later from from South America. And I think I had I started slowly getting back into cannabis and because it started to be around again. But I kind of approached it in this new way where I learned about dosage, like I bought a one hitter. And dosage is extremely, extremely important. I knew nothing about it almost until this point where everything I was smoking was like, Blunts and joints and like ripping bongs and stuff. It's like I ended up finding like the one hitter. I think this is roughly around the time where Wiz Khalifa's Cushion Orange Juice uh, mixtape dropped, and I went all in on that mixtape, listening to it all the time. Which it's all about cannabis. It's all about Kush, and I would just do a one hitter in the. This is the time where I started to do one hitters in the morning afternoon and evening and the relationship was good like I I was like accepting of cannabis and therefore it was responding well to me I would use it in my morning I'd go to work and then in at lunchtime I would do it again and then in the evening uh, right before I worked out and like after I worked out I'd just do these small increments over the course of the day and then eventually that kind of fizzled out and I started to smoke just in the evenings And then there was a long stretch where I would smoke almost every evening. And that lasted up until pretty much I got diagnosed with cancer. Now this is a big turning point and I bring it up again because up until I started chemo treatment, I didn't fully know the medicinal side. Of cannabis, it was still very recreational. Um, it was almost like a symbol of like social economics economics in a way. It's it was like a way to get together with people and to commune. And um, you know, there's just a lot of of social and cultural relevancy to cannabis, and that's kind of what it was for me. I would say that it would make me creative, but I do strongly question the creative power of cannabis. Like how I was using it at least, um, it, it would really shut down my creative flow. It would make me just more comfortable with not doing. Like I would have a list of like, I'm, today I'm gonna paint, today I'm gonna make music. Um, and I would just smoke And then, you know, not. I forgot a very important step in all this. Like pre-cancer, I was using cannabis uh, as a workout supplement. So there was a part in college where I would return home from school and I would want to smoke cannabis and I would belong to a 24-hour gym. So the best way for me to smoke was to go there at like 9 p.m., smoke in the parking lot Go play basketball, lift weights, sit in the sauna, do some yoga. So I, I turned smoking into a workout supplement. So just like I kind of earlier combined alcohol with smoking and the habits kind of brought themselves together, I later started to bring cannabis and and movement and working out together. Ironically, because it doesn't help your lung it doesn't help your cardiovascular system to smoke. So, and that's significant because before pre cancer in, in Chicago, I was starting to lead um, movement and medicine, which was basically people would come over. I would offer a variety of strains, two or three strains of cannabis. I would have pre rolled joints. We would, we would share a joint. I would maybe share some words, a theme of the day. Talk about the cannabis I was sh- I was sharing with everyone, and then we would get into a movement class, and people would pay me thirty dollars, and we would do you know all the cannabis would be supplied. I'd give them tea, I'd give them an hour and a half movement class, and uh, I really loved it. Like that was a that was when I was trying to reframe cannabis as a tool and and trying to t- break it away from the uh, just the cultural and the yeah, just the over overly uh, romanticization of it, trying to make it more utilitarian and uh, approach it from a level of respect. Like I since working with like mushrooms and ayahuasca, I do look at plants as like a form of consciousness to be interacted with and to be respected. So movement and medicine to me was very much bringing that respect element to it. Um, and then sharing from that place, sharing after spending years, um, using cannabis as a way to dive deeper into my movement. Uh, you know, there were some times where I would smoke and like do simple lifts like deadlift or squat and I would feel it in a different way. And I feel, and I'm like, oh, I'm learning how to squat for the first time. And I've been squatting for 15 years and I'm just now really feeling it with the aid of cannabis. So it really took on that that role of like guide, but it was also kind of a crutch. Like I would pretty much go to the gym to smoke, and, and like I would almost have to smoke before I'd go into the gym. You know, at, at a certain point, as opposed of using it sparingly, um, doing movements and doing practices routinely sober, and then. Adding cannabis at specific or small amounts of time to have a different perspective of the same practice, I think that's a good way to use it to grow is sparingly and um, with moderation I know but at various points of my journey, I've needed various levels of moderation, as we'll come to see so I go into I go into the chemotherapy. And chemotherapy is associated with a tremendous amount of nausea. That's that's the worst part, you know, for me. It was the nausea. And cannabis would bring a tremendous amount of relief. So what this part of my time did for me was I completely, all that guilt I was talking about earlier about smoking but not fully loving the fact, not fully surrendering to the fact that I was I was consuming cannabis not fully really allowing myself to enjoy it because of the shame, because of the slight question mark I had in my mind. Am I doing the right thing? Is this the right move? Well, when I was in the place of chemo and it was, and I was only trying to get better, I was only trying to heal my body, I fully gave into it. No shame, not even an ounce of shame. And I was full. I was able to fully embrace and fully enjoy and fully celebrate cannabis for really the first time. After, and then this was after 15 years of use, or 18 if you count from starting at 13, 17, 18 years. Of this is like the first time I was truly celebrating the plant and thanking it and communicating with it in my mind and and appreciating it and this coincided with the first time i started growing it so i got some seeds and i grew them and i and i grew these plants and i started to really understand the plant at its full cycle for so many years i only got the finished product even when i was selling i would only get the dried buds and i would flip it for a prop like it's so it's so strange to and weird and funny and silly to like just return to the origin of things And go like, oh yeah, there's a whole life to this plant before I get it and consume it and it gets me high. There's a whole entire world. There's a whole existence to this plant beforehand. And something about returning to that simplicity of the process, I think also ultimately contributed to me, to the relationship I'm I'm at with cannabis now, which is respectfully distant, um, yeah and 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 sober from it so i started growing it i started consuming only my own cannabis that i that i grew and um and that kind of brings me up to to now where after this all this kind of shame um and not knowing i finally get to this place where it's like i was ready to stop using cannabis And it's felt really good, actually. And I don't know if it's just because the contrast or it's because I'm healthy now. I'm I'm healthy and cancer-free, but the energy and the appreciation for sobriety and my creativity has just increased. And I'm really thankful for that. So I guess the message is, like, there's no rushing. You know, the more I try to stop smoking focus on smoking, <laughs> the more I tried to, like, used shame to try to change my habits, it all, it might have been necessary, maybe, but it all culminated to just me being, like, ready. Like, I'll, I even have a jar of cannabis that I grew, a full jar still, and I didn't have to flush it down the toilet. I didn't have to bury it or throw it out. I just don't need it. You know, I just have a healthy level of respect where I'm enjoying sobriety and That's it. So I do have to wrap this up because it looks like my battery or my storage is getting low. So I just like to say like cannabis is beautiful. Um, It has been overly romanticized and it'll turn into it'll you know, it'll be if not used correctly, it'll turn into alcohol, which alcohol is also beautiful and alcohol ceremonies are also beautiful um, but the overuse is a disrespect to yourself. I approach cannabis, approach alcohol like a relationship. And a good relationship shows respect on both sides. There's a proper, proper amount of frequency with how often you visit this relationship and how you talk to it, how you speak to yourself as you are communicating with the relationship. And... I hope this helps you on your journey. Um, if cannabis is right for you, use cannabis, please. You have sovereignty over your mind. It genuinely helps people. If you're considering, or if you have a question mark around it, you know, just know that uh, you may fade away from it. It may just you may just wake up one day ready to move on. And there's no need to there's no need to rush until there is. <laughs> Um, and if you're going to smoke, even if, even if the day is like, oh, I don't want to, but you are still finding yourself putting the bowl to your lips, even if you can just take one second before you light the lighter and just be like, and just ha- say whatever your prayer of gratitude is. So if you're going to use the substance, if you're going to fall into the habit again, just do it as mindfully as possible. Because I started doing that too, where it's like, I don't really need this anymore. I don't want this. And then I would just pause. (sighs) Thank you.